And we're back for part two of our interview with orchestra leader Henry Fogel. Um, Henry, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about orchestras in the press these days. Um, for the past few years, we've been, been reading a lot about orchestras in the press. We've followed, uh, you know, the emergence of the Philadelphia Orchestra out of bankruptcy, uh, the end of the labor conflict in Detroit, and of course, currently musicians in Atlanta are locked out for the second time in a very short period of time. Um, and of course, as you mentioned in part one of our interview, the liquidation of our beloved Syracuse Symphony Orchestra, which you recorded in 1961 in their first concert. In 2003, you were quoted in the New York Times saying, quote, I, I don't think there's a deep systemic problem that's unique to symphony orchestras since airlines and hotel chains and hockey teams are also suffering from the economic downturn. You then went on to say, quote, during the great economy of the 1990s, orchestras perhaps expanded faster than they should have. I believe that in really good economic times, orchestras should not spend up to their revenues and should instead go for a surplus and keep a cushion for the future. I wish I'd believed that 10 or 15 years ago, end quote. So 11 years later, does this still ring true for you? Yeah. Um, I mean, there are a couple of things that ring true. First of all, we probably haven't had a decade like that decade of the 90s in order to do that. There is still a tendency for orchestras, and I think nonprofits in general, which is so mission-driven that if the money is there, we're going to spend it, and the idea of actually holding aside a little bit is hard. It's a discipline that I would like to believe that if I were in a position of managing an orchestra now, I would try to find a way. Uh, But the other thing that's also true and sad, and it was true then and it's true now, is the story, orchestra balances budget, is not a news story. <laughs> right. Orchestra has small but manageable deficit, is not a news story. Right. Orchestra is locked out. Orchestra goes out of business. Now there's a news story. Um, even, and I know in Syracuse it's, of course, particularly hard because of that loss of that orchestra, But the fact is there are 400 professional orchestras in America. That's orchestras where musicians are paid when they rehearse or perform. I think 15 of them maybe went out in this most recent recession. That's not a horrible percentage. Now, another larger number did have to cut costs, including getting concessions from the musicians. But that did happen in every other business, too. Uh, recessions hit everybody. Orchestras aren't immune from them. Um, I do think it's becoming more and more complicated uh, to fundraise, and the fact that the costs have gone up faster than the earned revenue is something that's troubling to me. When I started out as a board member of the Syracuse Symphony and then got into orchestras, the norm was that an orchestra earned 50% of its budget. Now that would be shockingly high. Yes. And as we said in the, in the first part of this discussion, 35% is more than normal. And that does worry me. Um, and part of it, I think, is that we have not taken the time to rethink how we present the music, where we present it. Um, we keep expecting people to come to our sort of you know, big concert halls in the heart of downtown and sit for two hours and 15 minutes through a concert. And people have changed. People are different. Uh, 
it may well be that there's a segment of the audience that would absolutely love what we did if it took 80 minutes or 70 minutes of their time and if it was at 6 or 7 in the evening instead of 8.30 or 8 to 10. Um, and it may be it needs to be closer to some of their homes. In most cities, and there are studies that demonstrate this, traffic patterns have simply gotten worse. Building of roads hasn't equaled the building of people, the right. expansion of people. And so whereas in 1980, maybe it took 30 minutes to get from Evanston to Orchestra Hall in Chicago, now it takes 45. Well, it sounds like only 15 minutes, but in a round trip, it's a half hour. And if you go home after a concert and have to go to work the next morning, that becomes a problem. So I think orchestras have to look at presenting at least some of what they do where the people are. One of the things that's very interesting in Chicago is there are better and better community orchestras, professional orchestras in small communities around Chicago, Lake Forest, Elgin, and so forth, that are made up of good Chicago freelancers, mm -hmm. that they're actually growing at a time that the Chicago Symphony attendance is, is slightly shrinking. And part of it is people are finding, you know what? No, I know the Elgin Symphony is not the Chicago Symphony. It's not. Do you know what? It's good enough. These are good freelance players. They now have a very good young American conductor who I think has the potential to be a future star named Andrew Grams. They are half the ticket price. They have free parking in a lot right in front, within a block of the concert hall in Elgin. And the restaurants are cheaper in Elgin. The whole evening will cost you half or less than half of what it costs you to go downtown and take probably, if you're in the western suburbs of Chicago, take 15 or 30 minutes less time. And people are beginning to say, you know what? I recognize the Chicago Symphony as one of the greatest orchestras in the world. But you know what? The Elgin Symphony is good. And it's so much more convenient for me. I'll listen to the Chicago Symphony on recordings, but I'm going to go to Elgin. And so I think even some of the main legacy orchestras, as you call them, need to start thinking about can we bring what we do to communities rather than expect them to come to us. Sure. Uh, and there's a lot of thinking going on that way now. And you talk about the fact that you know orchestras should take the time and reimagine how they do business you know, that, that may be easier said than done, especially for a small orchestra. As you know, it it never stops, right? You're into one season. You're planning the next. It's a cycle that never ends. You're selling next season subscriptions this season, often using the cash from oh, next yeah. season subscriptions to fund this season. And so how can an orchestra take a pause? You know, obviously they can't stop performing concerts, but to find the resources, whether those resources are time and or money, to make those changes and to reassess really what they are at their core. One of the mistakes that I see in orchestras all the time, and when I was president of the League of American Orchestras, which you defined earlier as the advocacy group for orchestras, but it's actually more than that. It's also the service organization and professional development organization. I made it a point as the league president to say that I was going to spend half my time on the road visiting our member orchestras. And in six years, I actually visited 192 American orchestras. Uh, 
and I spent the, the the rule was any orchestra could ask me to come, but I had to spend at least an hour with the board. If the board wouldn't give me an hour, I wouldn't come Mm -hmm. because I wanted to understand the people who are governing the institution. And one of the key problems that I have seen time and time again is the board micromanaging day-to-day details and not thinking about these big issues. You'll have 20-minute discussions on whether the subscription brochure should be blue or red. Right. And you've actually got the resources on the board if you used them properly to deal with exactly the question that you asked. But what you wind up with is boards, I would say most orchestra boards are 25 to 35 in size in smaller communities. And you've got all 35 people spending a half hour talking about whether we should do this kind of a mailing or this kind of an ad. It's micromanaging. In a way, because it's easier to have it, it's easier for me to think about whether I like blue or red in the subscription brochure than to tackle the big issues. But some of these are people who run corporations or are high executives at corporations. If the board leader, and this is what I've been preaching everywhere I've gone, if the board chair and the executive director say, we're going to take this board and turn it into a think tank, you've got the resources to say, the, you six people on the board, you're going to stop worrying about everything we're doing this year. You're going to take a look at the ten and 20,000-foot level at where we go. And we have other people to deal with that. And you will have to trust us to make the right decisions because we don't want you thinking about this year's decisions. If, if they divide it, corporations do this all the time. They have long-range planning departments mm-hmm. and strategic planning departments, and orchestra boards fail to do that. I believe the or- – and then what we talked about earlier, start to bring the musicians into those discussions. Absolutely. You'll find some creative ideas among them. They are, after all, creative artists. And they've been with the institution long enough and, to have a lot of knowledge about what works and what doesn't. And they're motivated because their lives depend on it in a mm-hmm. way that board members don't. So I think the resources are usually in the orchestral in- institutions, and they fail to appropriately use them. What do you see as, you know, if you could pick, we talked about empathy earlier in, in terms of an orchestra manager. In terms of a member of the board of directors, what types of characteristics are necessary for an effective board member well, there, there's two different categories. One is skill sets. You want a board that doesn't have all of one thing. You don't want all finance people, all lawyers, all whatever. You want people whose professions are marketing, uh, people who have community connections, people who have access to philanthropic sources, people who have money themselves, and so forth. So that sort of, uh, sort of skill sets, I sure. would call it. In terms of quality... I will go back to when when I said empathy for orchestra administrators. I'll tell you one, not a word, but a phrase. Works and plays well in the sandbox. (laughs) Board members who don't always have to win. Mm. That, I have seen that really damage orchestras. Board members who have no tolerance for points of view other than their own. Um, and that sometimes that could be a, a, a corporate CEO, although usually that's not a successful CEO, but sometimes it sadly can be a very wealthy donor. This is my domain. Sure. And 
um, I've run into them in my life, believe me, and they, no matter how big their gift to the orchestra is, they do more damage than their gift does good. Um, you really want a board to be a think tank, but a think tank requires that people are comfortable expressing an opinion that might differ from what somebody else just said. And may not end up being the answer. Right. And, and what you need is, first of all, a board chair who creates that culture of comfort, but then board members who create it. In the Chicago Symphony, a board member proposed to the nominating committee somebody in town, and three members of the nominating committee said, absolutely not. This man, he was a very wealthy real estate developer, would have given a six-figure gift, and I'm talking 15 or 20 years ago, and, and the nominating committee said no. I, three of the people said, we sit on uh, other boards with this man. He is impossible. He is absolutely impossible. He has no tolerance for any different opinion than his own, and he will make this board a bad experience. We will not bring him on. And that was the right decision. That takes guts. Yep, it does. So we've talked a lot about orchestras. We've covered a lot of ground from board to staff to the musicians, um, you know, those three legs of the stool at least. And um, I wonder if we could expand the conversation a little bit to talk about the performing arts administration program that you started at Roosevelt University. Um, tell us a little bit about that and, and you know, what, what the objective is for that program. I was a little bit frustrated that I won't say all, but the vast majority of arts administration programs that are taught in America, number one, they're kind of unfocused, um, art museums, uh, a wide range of the arts, they're not, they're not specifically focused on performing arts. And number two, again, the vast majority are actually not taught by people who've actually administered arts organizations. I wanted to see if I could create a master's program where every member of the faculty was a practicing arts administrator, and not a retired one, but a, except for Current. me. Um, <laughs> and I'm, you don't seem retired. <laughs> uh, not really. Um, anyway, so I started looking at how do you do this. Well, obviously, if they were practicing arts administrators, they weren't going to be full-time teachers, and some of the people that I thought would be really good at it weren't lo living in Chicago. So we decided to make it an online program, and it's now, as we are sitting here talking, in its first year. It's mostly online. We did require the students to be for two weeks in July in Chicago. Then they have two semesters online, and then they will come back in June, late May, early June of next summer for in-person, you know, face-to-face -face stuff again, and they'll have the degree. It'll be less than 12 months to get the master's degree. Mm -hmm. And, for example, the marketing course is being taught by David Sneed, who's the vice president for marketing of the yeah, New York Philharmonic. He's fantastic. The development course is being taught by a man who's actually now called the executive vice president and COO of the Detroit Symphony, Paul Hogel, but whose profession is development. Paul actually worked with me at the Chicago Symphony, and when we made fundraising calls and the receptionist would say, may I tell them who's calling, we would say, Fogel and Hogel. <laughs> so we had a ball with that, um, et cetera. The, uh, Vanessa Moss, who's the vice president for orchestra and building operations at the Chicago Symphony, will teach the operations course, mm -hmm. et cetera. Everybody who is 
teaching Bill Thomas, who used to be the CFO and is now the general manager, I think, or COO of the New York Philharmonic, teaching the finance course. So they're all practitioners. They're all practitioners. That's exactly the word. Every faculty member is a practitioner. They are loving it. Some of them are teaching for the first time. All of them virtually are teaching online for the first time. Roosevelt has a big department of online teaching, so we have people who are helping them with the technology. Uh, So far, the feedback we're getting from the students is they're loving it. And the fact is you can get a master's degree in one year. Sure. And also, therefore, one year's tuition. Yeah, that's a huge benefit. So you seem to me, I mentioned earlier, you know, you don't seem like you're retired. You're you're always tinkering. You're always thinking. You're always learning things. I read somewhere that you're an expert Chinese cook. You took lessons for years. What are you working on now? What 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 are you into these days? You know, it's funny. I'm I'm always, I mean, except for the Chinese cooking and my family, it's always got something to do with music. It's, you know, it just, that's that's a part of me. Somebody said to me once, does your wife love music? And I said, she couldn't be married to me if she didn't love music. <laughs> She'd go crazy. We actually met on the standing room line of the Metropolitan Opera. Ah. Uh, magic flute. Um, I guess I would say the... Roosevelt job, the, the being a dean, mm-hmm. I mean, first of all, it's pretty unusual. You mentioned earlier that I attended Syracuse University and then started a radio station. What you may not know is that I dropped out of Syracuse University hmm. to start a radio station. Okay. So while I have, it is true, four honorary doctorates, I don't have an earned bachelor's degree. Right. And that's pretty good to get a job as a dean. That is not too shabby. Um, And they specifically didn't write college degree as one of the requirements because they wouldn't have been able to hire me if they did. They told me they'd like me to apply, and I reminded them that I didn't have a degree. (laughs) And they said, yes, we know, and we haven't made it one of the requirements. So um, in a way, this is tinkering because until now, I've dealt with finished professional musicians and audiences, and now I'm thinking, all right, how do we shape the next generation of musicians. Some of the things that we've been talking about here, I am starting to build into our curriculum to get a generation of musicians, at least coming out of Roosevelt, who think differently about the model of the orchestra. And I'm bringing in people from the Louisiana Philharmonic or so forth. I'm, I'm going to bring, I bring almost every year, Ann Parsons, who's the Detroit Symphony president. Sure. Uh, she actually came in during their lockout. A year later, she came in with a musician, and the two of them talked to my class, and now she's coming in because they're doing some really imaginative things. And Anne's very first job was working for me at the National Symphony in, in Washington. Actually, it's very funny because my artistic administrator was Allison Volgamore, and my orchestra manager was Ann Parsons. They now run the Philadelphia and Detroit symphonies, two of the hardest jobs that, that there are. Uh, anyway, so I'm tinkering in that I'm working now in education, and I guess that's, that's how That's I'm, your tinkering That's these my days. tinkering. Well, Henry, it's been a pleasure. I could go on for days, but I'm getting the wrap-up signal. So we're going to call it a day, and thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure. Making Art Work is produced by the Arts Administration Program at Lemoyne College in Syracuse, New York, with support provided by the Department of Communication and Film Studies and WLMU Radio, as well as our broadcast partner, WCNY Classic FM. Our theme song was written by Lemoyne College music faculty member Edward Rahowski and performed by the Bang on a Can All-Stars. 
For more information about arts administration at Lemoyne, visit lemoyne.edu slash artsadmin or follow us on Twitter at LMCArtsADMN. I'm your host, Travis Newton, hoping you'll join us again next time on Making Art Work.